Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I am delighted, as always, to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us for today's episode over 1987's A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Yeah, I feel like it does need uh, like a Eye of the Tiger introduction uh, to anything that's going to have the phrase Dream Warriors. Yeah, we need to get like a, a um, oh, you know, a trailer, a, a trailer voice person in here. We to, really do. To just like uh, spice it up, you know, add the drama. Because it really needs drama that your voice just clearly can't capture on its own. <laughs> I'm so glad we're working our way through uh, this franchise. I don't know why it took us so long to to do so. In our defense, there's a lot of horror movies and even a lot of horror franchises. Although I, I think I do agree with you. It's frustrating it took us so long, particularly when you forced me to do Halloween. That is true. Although I only force you to do one a year. So that feels super manageable. But but yes, uh, you know, as we're working our way through the franchise, um, I'm just reminded watching it sort of sequentially because it feels like I, I watch a lot of these ones like out of out of order, or just mm-hmm. randomly on their own. Just watching the, the larger narrative unfold has been really interesting, uh, especially because I'd never seen two um, and I've, I had seen three several times. So um, that was kind of an interesting new experience to watch mm-hmm. Dream Warriors in light of uh, Freddy's Revenge. Yeah, Dream Warriors is very very interesting movie in both in its in its in it's very interesting by itself of course but it's also interesting in where it falls in the nightmare franchise because yeah this is the first uh nightmare with Wes Craven back in some way mm-hmm. uh he's just writing this time around but it is a turn from uh he did not want to work on the sequel because he did not want nightmare to be a franchise but he yeah. came back for this one because he thought that this was going to be the final film in the franchise. But yeah. then, because this was successful, obviously that meant that the franchise had to continue because capitalism must capitalism. So, you know. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because one of the things that I like is sort of seeing how um, the things that Craven wanted, you know, he gets to, but it just takes him a really long time, right? Like he wanted this one to be even more meta, uh, you know, and he was like, okay, hold on, we will return to this eventually. And then of course we do with a new nightmare. Yeah, the the original draft that Craven wrote for this one was what he ultimately ended up getting to make with a new nightmare years later. That, But I mean, yeah, it's certainly, this is very interesting for many, many reasons. Yeah, I don't even know if I am sure where to begin, because I, I feel like there's so many, I have so many thoughts. So why don't you guide us? Where would you like to start our conversation first? Well, I think that A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 it has, it has to answer a unique question that is unique for horror slasher sequels, uh, or at least the ones that include the final girl from a previous entry, and that's what to do with the final girl who has previously achieved, and I know you're going to hate this, but the phallic. 
What do you do once the final girl once the final girl is back, but they've already achieved the phallus? And that's what this movie has to deal with. I will make that sound every time you say that word, just to let you know. I can't, it's like, it's involuntary. But I think you're absolutely correct. I'm glad you started there. Um, because I feel like Nightmare as a franchise answers this question very, very differently than our other franchises do. Um, you know, with Halloween, if we are supposed to ignore all the films that were made between the, the original and the 2018 as, as the franchise wants us to do, right? At the very least, she's really, really scarred. But if we sort of keep um, the the other films that are exist, regardless mm-hmm. of whether they want us to to think of them. Yeah, they got mind. made. And yeah, they, they got were... made. They're part of my memory. And, right? and they were even intended to be a part of the Halloween franchise until it became inconvenient for them to be a part of the Halloween franchise. Exactly. Uh, you know, again, it's sort of that that story of of be, of trauma, right, and of of being scarred. What I like about Nightmare is that it feels like instead of it just being, but wait, we're going to traumatize our person some more. It, it's it's more. I don't know. Heather has more agency because she's making this decision to to use her experience to help others. Um, and and it doesn't feel. You know, she puts herself into danger intentionally in a way that I feel like a lot of the other franchises with our final girls are just like, oops, guess you're never escaping this. Yeah. Uh, Although I will kind of push back on it because the film does kind of, before it can get to that, which is what is the good stuff, the good stuff it does with Nancy, it does kind of, and I don't know if this is a real phrase or if I'm just making this up, but de-phallic Nancy because it pairs her with this older, grizzled member of the patriarchy uh, with this, who initially doesn't believe her. She loses her power, the power of the phallic, so to speak, to achieve this, uh, to, to continue this absolutely disgusting metaphor. Um, yeah, please do, please uh, do. So she, I mean, at the start of Dream Warrior, she has the phallic, but it's not recognized. And so she has to go through a recognition period to achieve the phallic again. So I, I, she does, the film does kind of, kind of de-phallic her at the start, at least. Well, it's interesting that you say that because it, it does, and yet again, it doesn't quite, right? Because there's that line where, um, what is his name? We called him Grizzly and Old, but he's not that old. I said older, or maybe I did say old. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, Neil? Thank you. Neil Gordon. Uh, so Neil's says uh, something along the lines of like, why are we treating this person who's barely out of um, school with prestige when I've been working with these people for like ever? But we know why she's been chosen, right? So there's kind of, there's an interesting way in which on the one hand, I think you're right, that we have to like watch her go back through the hero's journey, if you will, Mm -hmm. and to sort of reclaim, um, I'm not going to say it, I just want, I just don't want to (laughs) reclaim her power. But at the same time, the film is also telling us that there's a discrepancy between what the system uh, sees to be the truth and what we already as the audience know to be the truth. Uh, it definitely contributes to this overall conversation that the film wants to have about like faith versus reason, faith versus science, if, whatever you want to call it. And the audience already has the faith that mm-hmm. Nancy's the right choice because we've seen the previous nightmares. We know that this Freddy Krueger guy is real because we've seen it. We have faith, the audience does. But yeah. within the context of the story world that we're being presented, it does, at least for the first act, 
choose to take away Nancy's power, and which is an interesting choice, even if it does ultimately restore her power to her um, by the second by the start of the second act. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and it's a good point because I think it reveals the larger sort of magic for me of of all the nightmare films, and that is is that. And this doesn't sound like it should be a good thing, but but it's a contradictory text, right? It's a text that's that's often doing something different from in the narrative than it's doing from the experience of engaging with the narrative. Um, and and this example of Heather is is such a good one in this particular film because, of course, at the end, she also, you know, if we're gonna keep going there she gets phallicked right um you know she gets she gets stabbed there at the end um by freddie who's not just freddie but once again her father right uh we're returning back to like it can't get much more uh sort of electra uh, you know it's the opposite of the oedipal complex it can't get much more electra in terms of the like she's so excited because her dad's like i just want you to know i love you honey and then right and then he impales her uh with his his knives because it's really freddy so again if, if we can read heather as this really strong character for so much of the film she's also not our final girl uh not at the end um and and that that's a confusing thing to do because this film really likes to confuse us about whether or not we're supposed to celebrate and how we're supposed to celebrate the people that are remaining alive at the end. Can we go back to Neil, though, for a second? Yeah, sure. What, okay. What, so, what about Neil? Yeah, so watching it this time around, I I just, I think I was creeped out a little bit more um, by, by Neil because this time around, and I'm not sure if I could tell you why, I felt this way, but it just felt so much more uh, romantic in in terms of, you know, and, and of course it wasn't just romantic because it was also fatherly. Um, and I just, and I just felt icky uh, in a way that I don't remember feeling last time. And I don't know if it's just because uh, this time around I saw Neil as, as a bigger character and previously I really focused more on the teens. I'm not sure what it is, but I just want to say that, that this film does such a good job of taking these these relationships, these paternal relationships and like making us really uncomfortable in these spaces, whether we're uncomfortable because we realize that our, our father figure, who's also, you know, the cop can't protect us or because it's like, you know, he's, he's just a little too close to his protege, uh, a little too trusting. I don't know. I don't know. It's just something about it really bothered me this time. How do you read it as being this weirdly romantic yeah, I definitely got it was very like sexual, but not in an you're right, not in an overt way. Like they but they like the just the way that they would like position them when they were at dinner and like yes. the lighting, the mood lighting that they would kind yes. of use with them at any time. And they were just very close and I mean, obviously he's kind he's kind of like touchy in a way that has gone out of style <laughs> now, yes. um to say the least. So, uh, yeah, I think it's in there. And... But, like, that final scene between him and, and the dad when they're in the junkyard, uh -huh. it felt it felt very, um, and this is a little bit of a stretch, I realize, but it felt very, like, um, who gives away this woman, right? Moment of the, like, wedding ceremony where it was, like, this weird tussle for who gets to be the protector of Heather. And meanwhile, Heather's clearly just doing fine protecting herself. And and I think that's what I found so so disturbing um is that this, i feel like 
Nightmare has done this for me, you know, in, in three films so far, and I assume it'll continue on as mm-hmm. we watch the films later, but um, this awareness that, like, there's something really in, inherently icky about this patriarchal system because if we focus on the people that are are being quote protected in the system children women um particularly female children um we realize that those are the ones that are either not being protected at all or don't need the protection and i just find it really interesting how this film puts that into this narrative that is is ultimately a slasher film right Mm -hmm. that's all about sort of the patriarchy yeah i mean i that's not a new source of horror like you're saying this kind of anti-institutional anti-status quo is a is a commonality throughout the previous the last these three nightmare films that we've gotten to so far uh and in this one it's really interesting i think that they choose to extend their anti-institution critique to the medical professionals which is that is a new area for the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise because, I mean, the first movie, it's like cops are bad because, I mean, the chief of police can't even protect, can't even protect his daughter. Like, that's, Mm -hmm. oh, that's how bad it is. It's clear. Like, I guess the second one is far more about the educational system and it's kind of just about, like, the closed-mindedness that's present in there. And then this one is about, is about the medical industry and, I mean, psychology and mental health and that's interesting yeah we get that we get that really tiny snippet in one where they're trying to do the the test uh the dream test right on on nancy i said a heather earlier oops um nancy but but you're right that this is is the one that focuses more exclusively on this and one of the things that i think is is lovely about this film and that is very different from a lot of films horror films that give us introductions or examinations of uh particularly mental health is that i don't feel like this was condemning at all um the the mentally ill people no no it's clearly the source of horror is supposed is not the fact that they have mental illnesses which exactly so often like you like you were alluding to that's what's scary in horror films it's just like oh look at the mentally ill over there it's just like another it's just another it's a cheap way to evoke horror yes it's an easy way to build in a monster right yeah who is monstrous those that are different from us who's different from us the mentally ill whereas this one first i think gave us a a wide range of characters right Mm -hmm. we got to see a whole bunch of different um, reasons that these teenagers were were in this place, um, and and never once do I think it made us feel like oh well they deserve it or but they are monstrous themselves. Right? Yeah, the um, source of horror is that society and this, these systems are not believing the pains and feelings of those with mentally ill. You can, exactly, it's really tapping into this fear that you talk about that you have personally of like saying you say something is going to happen but nobody believes you. And that's what's happening. And I mean, society just has no idea what to do with people who are mentally ill. And so when they say something's happening in their head, they already are inclined not to believe you. And this film just shows the extent of what can happen when you don't believe those who are telling you something is wrong. And what I appreciated is that this film never went as as far as it could have or as far as many films have in terms of showing like actual abuse in the system. So one of the things I really liked um, is, you know, Lawrence Fishburne's 
delivery as Max Daniels because he's he's doing tough love, but he's not abusive, right? And a lot of times, if we see the medical industry as bad, it's, you know, actual, like, physical or sexual or mental mm -hmm. abuse. Instead, it was just, like you said, it was neglect. It was a refusal to acknowledge the disenfranchised. And it was also a refusal to to be progressive, right? Because if they had gone with that um, experimental medication, some things would have been better. So it was really interesting to see how this film, like you said, is condemning yet another part of, of what makes up the patriarchy. Yeah, it's this medical profession that's filled with and shaped by and for uh, those in power, which as, as is uh, in our society, the, the patriarchal elites. Yeah, and so, I mean, this, it just basically says, like, the medical professionals are all fools. Uh, and, and it, except for the outsider, Nancy, who, who, who knows the truth. Exactly. Who knows the truth and, and knows the truth, not because of her formal education, uh, but again, because of her personal experience. It's, it's all about faith over reason and action over understanding, which is... In, in, in another way, if you want to, something else that it's critiquing is it's very much critiquing intellectuals like us, I would, I would probably say, like, this podcast, because, like, it, it doesn't necessarily care if you can understand something, verbalize it, rationalize it, uh, if you don't take any real action to stop the problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we see that particularly, I think, as Neil begins to make the transition to, to believing Nancy and also his sort of confrontations with um, the head nurse, right? Who is overseeing uh, the patients and like reports Neil and, and Nancy sort of admittedly, uh, it's not wise to just like see what happens with group therapy, but like, but you know, I mean, she just immediately reports it. And so we, we get this, one of our villains, if you will, in addition to, to Freddie, um, are the people who are refusing to look at anything but the, the intellectual side of things mm -hmm. um, and what the evidence is showing. And, and what has already been established. Like you said earlier, they're not looking, they're not able to progress because they're not willing to do anything that would progress forward. They're only... They only want to do what they know has worked in the past, which in this situation isn't going to work because nobody has had to deal with Freddy in the past. Exactly. And and is only and is never going to work as long as they don't listen to the, the group of people who are being ignored. Right. So I think it's important that when we think about a group of teens, you know, Nancy describes them as being the last of the, the Elm Street kids, but they're also, we have someone in a wheelchair. We have someone who doesn't speak. Um, we have someone who's the sort of like, quote, bad boy figure. We have an addict. We have someone who's obsessed with TV. Um, we have a, a black person, right? We have all of these groups of people that we have been taught are, are not the voices we should be listening to, right? Or not the people that we should be hearing, uh, we have the, you know, rich white girl, right? We have mm -hmm. all of these, like, categories. And it's interesting to see how the film is saying, wait a minute, it is very possible that these are the group of people that can tell you about the true horrors, right, that are being experienced um, and certainly can tell you about their experiences, right? No other voice can capture your trauma except for you. And that's a really rather profound message for a third film in a franchise to be trying to tackle it's a, it, yeah it really relates to there there are 
a lot of theorists who postulate that those who are neurodivergent and or are mentally what society deems as mentally ill are actually those who see the problems of society most clearly and refuse to just blindly conform and accept the rules of society and i really think that that is the approach that nightmare 3 is taking it is saying that the perhaps these are not the most broken perhaps the most broken is the system and those who just tacitly uphold it without actually critically thinking about it what i like about what you said lots of things i like i like all of it but i like the fact that that what you're describing also allows the element about um, Sister Helena slash Amanda Kruger to make sense, right? Because if we're seeing this as those that, that don't see the system the same way everyone else does can see something truer than those trapped in the system, that not only is going to describe those that, um, that we've you know, claim to have mental illness. It's also going to refer to people that are, are religious, right? Because they are by definition choosing to be outside the world, right? That is part of the Christian creed is to be not of this world, right? Um, and so there's a really interesting way in which this this film is giving a voice to the voices that are often pushed to the margins uh, and saying that it's just as much those that are, are mentally ill as it is uh, those that are religious or to go back to your earlier argument, those that have faith. Yeah, if the nun uh, whom is Freddy Krueger's mother in a big old, I mean, I, I mean, it's about as obvious of a twist as any. I mean, you can see right? it coming from, <laughs> from miles away. As soon as they showed up, I was like, oh, that's yeah. the mom. But yeah. uh, oh, that aside, the, the nun tells Neil, uh, if your only faith is science, doctor, it may be you that is laid to rest. And I, I think that's really commenting on how uh, science is being used interchangeably here for those who just value empirical hard evidence, just the things in the objective uh, that you can plainly see, facts and figures. This overvaluing of that and devaluing of individual experience, uh, what's actually going on right in front of you, evaluating the situation, because you're not able to always apply your facts and figures as well as you are your own, one's own lived experience. And I think that applies to religious, as we're talking about, it applies to those who are experiencing their own mental illness, their own individual forms of oppression uh, in society. So I really think in that way, it real Nightmare Three really is kind of a really good crystallization of all of the themes from the previous two Nightmare movies, and I it makes a lot of sense after, uh, after that. I it makes a lot of sense that this was what Wes Craven thought the end of the franchise should be. I agree. You know, as you were talking, it, it reminded me of um, trauma studies a little bit more explicitly because. What you're really describing is sort of the the handling of a situation, right? The reflecting on it, the engaging with it, the telling of one's story, right? And and claiming one's narrative that is sort of at the heart of, of a lot of what um, the scholars of, of trauma theory are getting at, right? So people like Kathy Carruth, who wrote the sort of foundational text called Unclaimed Experience, Trauma Narrative and History, uh, she, she looks at the fact that, you know, um, trauma is not a single event it is that event continuing to haunt us and it's us um sort of having to deal with its rearing its ugly head and and needing to think about what 
what that means. And it's also about sharing one's story. Uh, and a lot of trauma theorists are talking specifically about the Holocaust, which makes sense. Um, and, and the fact that like it's it's only through the sharing of one's narrative um, that that you survive, right? You don't survive uh, despite sharing your story, you survive because you haven't. And so I think you're absolutely correct that, that this film is really giving us that sort of perspective on things, right? That, that this is, okay, film one was, was uh, Nancy just like trying to stay alive. Mm -hmm. um, film two takes such a deviation, but again, it's just about surviving in this moment. Whereas this film is really more about the, the, the trauma of the experience, right? And the trauma of being someone that is outside a safe place, right? Outside of, of the boundaries of being protected because your your story is not being heard. Yeah, and in this way it is it is different from the other two because it is a film in which every single character who is being haunted by Freddy has already previously been traumatized. Freddy yes. is not their initial traumatic experience. Like, I mean that is kind of the case for Nancy. I guess you could perhaps argue that the traumatic experience would be her parents' divorce, which is, it is, it is pretty traumatic, but... Sure. But it is not as, that is not true of everyone else who we see get and, killed in the night, in the rest of that film. And then Nancy in film three, her initial incident is not Freddy in that film, right? It's, it's a prior experience with Freddy. So I think your point still stands, right? That everyone... Um, has a prior trauma before Freddy's uh, interruption in this particular film. Which I think is incredibly interesting and it allows them to do have a lot more interesting interactions with Freddy in the dream world. Yes. Because whereas previously, I think, I mean, while a lot of the kills and like the stuff with Freddy in the other movies are really interesting, it does rely more on like, a vague idea of what a dream is and like yes. oh this is kind of vaguely what's scary to a lot of people this is like common things that happen in bad dreams whereas i think this one is really like oh this is what you specifically are traumatized by well let me uh let me just force you to live that like the the girl who wants to be on tv welcome to prime time uh joey you can't talk you feeling tongue-tied? I'm going to wrap you up with your own little tongues. You look tired. Ha have a seat. That one's, I mean, that one's horrifying. That's... Yeah. Uh, and the needles. The needles. Uh, oh, it's all, yeah. It's so specific at, to these individuals, and it is specifically the most traumatic thing that they could be seeing, and that is why it's so good. Yeah, you know, I, I realized only only fairly recently, which is rather surprising, that, that I actually have a minor form of, of trypophobia, the fear of, like, closely packed holes, right? Um, and I don't like, like, when I look at a strawberry, no biggie. When I look at a cable knit sweater, no biggie. But, like, bone marrow, ugh, so gross. Um, and and we get that, right? And and I think you're absolutely correct, because what this film is doing is it's it is giving us some, like, very um, general, traditional sources of fear, but it's it's tailoring them in a way that that makes it much more terrifying because to be perfectly honest i don't think glenn in nightmare one's biggest fear was that he was going to be sucked into his bed right like i don't think there's yeah. nothing about his character that's just that is something that terrifies him whereas what makes this particular film 
so haunting is exactly as you said that we get to see these the fact that what makes nightmares so disturbing is is that we have a history with them right or they're touching on things that are are not going to be scary for other people Mm -hmm. and i think that's so interesting about this movie is that it really does it is interested specifically in developing this idea of what dreams are um there's that really funny line that the psych nurse says when she's like dreams are the byproduct of guilt psychological scars stemming from moral conflicts and overt sexuality which is hilarious that's meta commentary i mean she just psychoanalyzed the previous two movies yeah yeah that that's very funny and then the movie it makes that acknowledgement but then it ultimately rejects that it's it says that dreams no they're not byproducts of guilt they're not abstract dreams are very real and tangible and exactly because of that fact that they're real and tangible and not stemming just from byproducts of guilt and these uh, really weighty things, I think it allows it to explore the more positive and magical elements of dreams, which is, I mean, that's pretty different from the previous Nightmare movies. Yes. Can you elaborate a little bit more on on that that idea of, like, the magic of, of the dreams? Yeah, I mean, we are not shown in the other two Nightmare films that it is possible for individuals to harness and tap into the good elements of dreams, like this idea of lucid dreaming and this importance uh, that they can have. I mean, lucid dreaming is a huge practice in a lot of cultures because dreams are just as real to them. You spend a third of your time asleep, so this time in the dream world must mean something. That's what, or, or so these cultures believe and the idea is uh, and so i think that's really interesting to dive into and all of these characters in order to defeat freddy have to take control and agency of this kind of nightmarish world what or what seems to be a nightmare first which makes the title so fitting right because it unlike i think one and two which are are much more about sort of being caught in things, right? There, There is a, a larger degree of agency in this one um, because we see them being able to stand, uh, being, quote, beautiful, uh, being strong, having their voice. Um, and and I think you're absolutely correct that, that what this film does is it, you know, one, showed us that nightmares are scary. Two, showed us that we can never quite know if we're in reality or nightmares. But three, shows us, like you said, the, the power for, for good and ill of, of the dreamscape. Um, and that's really interesting. And I think it's, it is really interesting because it's also a, a rejection of this idea that things can only be one thing or another. This rejection of dualism, which is another uh, idea that is dominant in the status quo. Dualism, it's this idea that there can only be one or one thing or the other. Things are either black or white, good or bad. And you see that seeped into the, into a lot of individuals' mindset as well as that's how systems and institutions are set up with this either black or white approach. And this film is like, no, 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 no. Things are not either good or bad. This is a dream, this is, things are so much more nuanced than that. And it is a lot of times what you bring to it that colors what that unique situation is going to be it's not it's not this overly simplified good bad 
nightmare, happy dream. It, it is what you make. And what makes the Nightmare series so powerful um, is its awareness of this on sort of a meta level. So a lot of horror really thrives on creating dichotomies, right? There's the monster that's outside and then there's us humans inside. Um, and, and yet where the interesting horror lies, right, is in this this liminal space where it's like, but is it? Is it either or, right? Um, and so it's like Jeffrey Jerome Cohen talks about the fact that monsters are not about either or. They are about sort of this yes and. Um, and of course, a good example is zombies. Are they, you know, uh, human or, or other? And it's like, well, yeah. And and I think slasher films try really, really hard to, to enforce as a general rule this dichotomy. But as even people like Carol Clover said, um, our final girl is, is herself this thing that is supposed to be, um, you know, this female figure, but also one that is identifiable for the male audiences. And I think Nightmare, out of all the horror franchises that I can think of, just other than like Evil Dead, which is also parodying things, just says straight out, we cannot live in this in this either or world that doesn't make any sense. The reality is, is that we are always a little bit in the real world and a little bit in the dream world. We are always a little bit our own mon worst monster um, and the hero of our narrative. And this film and, and it really just explicitly makes that point in a way that almost makes you wish that it was the end um, of the franchise. Not not. But then we wouldn't have the other films. But, you know, like just there's so much that this film is sort of ending the conversation on uh, that's really just fascinating. Yeah, because uh, uh, it's speaking to the conclusive, the conclusivity of this film, I don't know if that's a real word. Conclusivity? What is that? I don't think it is, but it is now. I mean, Speaking you know. to the conclusivity of the film. Yes. It is, it does really wrap up in a nice bow. I mean, the whole thing is about, like, children uh, this is a source of horror throughout the these three films is that children pay for the sins of their parents and mm -hmm. it's that source of horror i'm gonna be i don't think i've seen any other nightmares past this so i'll be shocked if that source of horror pops up again because i don't know how they could do it again because they've buried they've buried his body laid it to rest which you referenced Greek tragedy earlier. This is very reminiscent of Antigone, in which the whole thing is you have to lay the body to rest, otherwise the soul will never be able to lie in the ground. And so, I mean, that whole B-plot with the nun and the burying Freddy's ashes, very inspired by Greek tragedy. But as well as just Christian faith. As well right? as just Christian faith in general, mm -hmm. yes, of course. Uh, but it kind of seems like it would be hard to go for forward from here. So... Or at least with that particular source of horror and element. So I think it's going to... I'm really intrigued to see what they replace that with or if they even do try to replace it. Yeah, so we'll get a little of that in, in Dream 4 because it, we're returning to, to Kristen or Kirsten. I can never remember which. Parker, right? Um, and she's kind of going to be the, the main character. So we're going to kind of continue some of, of the, the narrative. But I think you're right that, that this film is is really sort of bringing a conclusion to at least a chapter um, mm -hmm. of, of the story. And I, I want to go back to, to what you said about the, the burial um, and the body, because I think that, again, one of the things this film does more explicitly than the other two, and, and I, I'm 100% for it, um, is the sort of uh, 
engagement with the the more religious aspects. So from the beginning, right, our, our initial uh, rhyme includes the, you know, grab your crucifix. Mm-hmm. But this is the film that really sort of plays with the idea of of ritual um, and and this idea that, you know, um, so I was talking to a Catholic friend. I didn't know this, but uh, Catholics are encouraged to not be uh, cremated because they, they're supposed to be buried. Um, and so there's a very interesting way in which we're having this this burial ritual that feels really sort of um, as a like antithesis to to the most famous, at least religiously speaking, burial story, right? That that of, of Jesus, and so there's an interesting way in which we have the, a resurrection. Like it just follows a lot of um, wait, themes wait, wait, that. Wait, wait. Freddy Krueger is. You're making the argument right now that Freddy Krueger is a Christ figure. No, I, <laughs> no. I'm making the argument that this film is is giving us yet another example of how we can't have these dichotomies because we have someone in Freddy who, um, if we're going to continue this, right, is the mother. I mean, is the child of a of a holy woman um, who has the the ability to affect the world uh whose body has never who actually in this case has a body as opposed to not having a body to be buried right like i just it feels like it's, it's definitely not a christ figure this is the third movie and he resurrects in this one he's finally able to go back the, oh my god freddy krueger is a christ figure confirmed <laughs> That is, that is. Oh, that tr- sounds so sacrilegious. Um, but, but it is, you, what we've just described, what you've just described, this important of rituals, this idea of uh, he, he, he's come back, uh, he's come back, but then he can go, but then he will ultimately be able to ascend up after a period of three, three, <laughs> Jesus three days, Freddy Krueger three oh, movies. It's terrible. But yeah, okay, so... The part of me that, again, is, is horrified by the sacrilegious turn that this conversation has taken um, is, is a bit traumatized, but but the, the academic in me is, yeah, there is something to be said about how this film is is taking everything that we understand and and not letting us rest there comfortably. And we haven't even talked about, like, all the, just like, can I just say shout out again to the film in terms of special effects yeah and and in in terms of of just other uh, effects but like the claymation with the puppets um the the giant worm-like thing did you read about the fact that when they when they first created the worm-like version of of freddy that it was like way way too phallic because it was just this giant pink um thing with a head on the on the top trying to eat someone um and they just were like we only have an hour so so they were like let's just throw some green goo on it because we don't have time to make anything new um that's hilarious you know, like, yeah Did not it's... know that but you know yeah, I, so gross this is this i would believe that story from this franchise and i would believe that story from evil dead that, pretty much those are the only two that yeah. that could happen that's hilarious and i know and it's so gross even some of the ones that are a little less practical although a lot of it's practical but like the um the strings um you know the puppet master moment um or the scene with uh the the boy in the wheelchair and the the wizardness right like i just there's so much of this film that just does such masterful stuff in terms of uh 
see the CGI and the special effects that I just have to like glow in it. Like I think that that's why this franchise will is con- continues to be watchable because they they aren't relying on exclusively what would have been radical technology for 87 that would have been terrible for today. Yeah, the the effects look good and for the most part hold up even today. Mm-hmm. The cast is really good and they got some big names for this. I was I was watching that opening credits and I was like Patricia Arquette, that's an Oscar winner, Lawrence Fish- Fishburne. Yeah. I then of course you've got uh the return of Heather uh is there anybody, any other famous people? Oh, John Saxon's back, of course. I was just yep. impressed by yep. watching it. I was like, wow, they really, they really put together a good, a good cast for this. Yeah, one. and and you know, this is Arquette's first real role. Um, you know, this is before like Fishburne has had become that person that I think everyone wanted to be in their films, um, because it's just sort of like early in his career. Um, and and you're absolutely correct. Like we have really good acting. We have um, fun cinematography. I do want to say if I have one thing that I'm not a fan of uh, in this in this film, it is it is the need that we have to give a backstory to our monsters. Um, the giving Freddy the backstory of you know how he's the product of you know a hundred plus rapes, which is real intense, um, you know, and and having us have to have that like that he is the the product of of not just rape but of of a mental of a bunch of mentally ill people um i know that there's a little bit of that that's just kind of continuing the sins of the father motif but to me that is the one place where i think this film took away what has been consistently one of its most powerful as a franchise concepts and that is this idea that um we the system quote, ordinary system that looks so average on the outside with all of our white picket fences is capable of of helping to create a monster, right? Um, I think that's lost a little bit in this because it's, it's, give, it's like, of course he's evil. How could he have been anything but that? And it's like, well, he was evil all along, but also they burnt him alive, right? So I, I felt like that was something that I, I think I would be okay with never having another backstory again, period, for any monster ever yep i'm gonna go that big so that was my one thing i don't know if it bothered you because i know sometimes that's that the backstory is something that bothers you if it was just not something you really cared i guess because the backstory kind of fit a lot i guess because they didn't really stay with it for very long i kind of just it didn't offend me i didn't really care the b plot admittedly is the plot i cared less about this whole idea of following the nun even even if I did sometimes like how it contributed to the source of horror in the film and like some of the elements that it brought, those were always the moments that I liked the least. And when I thought the writing wasn't quite as strong, which was where that was the only major problem I had is just sometimes there was um, the writing was pretty stupid. Like most every almost everything John Saxton said in this movie made me laugh, but not in the way I think they were intending it. Yeah. Uh, and it, oh, just a lot of the scenes, like when 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 they, it was found out that the nun was Freddie's mom, just the literal saying of "You're his mother." As we read the tombstone that has the name on it, yeah. I'm like, okay, this is a little silly. 
Yeah, there was definitely some, like, for the lowest denominator, right? Like, we'll go ahead and put this in in case you forgot that her name was Amanda or forgot that Freddie's last name was Kruger or just weren't paying attention. Um, and, and there were several moments in that, and I think you're right, that, that the ones where we see it most evident are um, in, you know, Nancy's father and any of those conversations and then just some of the dialogue with and about. But other than that, this movie is really fun. I... This was the first time I think I had really sat down to just watch this movie. I had seen this in, like, Nightmare, late night watches, like, when it would marathon on TV. So I had seen it like that, or I'd seen bits and pieces of this movie. So I was really, I was very, very pleasantly surprised. Um, Yeah, this is, this is not, I, I don't know if I think, I think only time will tell. If, the, if I like this movie better than the original or where and like where it fits within my overall nightmare ranking. But right now I'm pretty confident saying I don't think I will ever not like it. And I had a great time with it. And again, I think the key to success, and we've talked about this before, is to not have a franchise where the next installment is OK, but how can we go bigger and, and more blood? It's OK, but how can we take this idea and, and twist it just a smidge and then see what happens. Um, and that's what I think Evil Dead has done successfully and that's what, what Nightmare is proving to do. Thank you so much for joining us for our discussion of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. As is always the case, we will be returning to this franchise, but we will take a brief break so that you can have a palate cleanse. Uh, and instead, our next episode will be on 2017's One Cut of the Dead. If you have not seen that film, go ahead and watch it right now in preparation for that episode. And do not read anything about it is the advice I've been given. Uh, yes. Uh, have, have you seen it yet? I still haven't seen it. So this okay. is a film that Anthony has been wanting me to watch for a really long time. The other friends were like, you need to watch this now. And I, I keep putting it off and I don't know I think it's because I'm afraid that it won't be because I accidentally found out a little bit about the film ahead of time that I'm gonna it's not gonna be as magical for me but I'm I'm so excited to finally have a reason to watch this film so that we can talk about it and I'm excited to talk about it with you as well and share it with all of our listeners in the meantime check out our YouTube channel where we'll be uploading a spooky scrap over Nightmare 3. Also in the description is all of our social medias, so be sure to follow us on there. And have a spooktacular day. Bye.